Hello and welcome to Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and you're listening to episode 95 with Julia Swain, DP of the film Scrambled by Leah McKendrick. Enjoy. Have you been watching anything good recently? I mean, I watched The Last of Us with everybody else in the world. <laughs> Listen, Which I'm not mad about it. a really fun ride. I'm not mad about it. <laughs> like Game of Thrones, I wasn't too, uh, you know, culture. I didn't see it. So I wasn't like in the cultural yeah. zeitgeist for Game of Thrones. But for Last of Us, yeah. I've been just going up to him. Like, Did you see it? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I've been very fortunate to be really busy the beginning of this year, too. So every, you know, it's been mainly all commercials but every set i'm like guy crew guys have you seen the last episode so it's been fun i wasn't i wasn't in it for game of thrones either like i wasn't i was behind like way behind and it already happened so it was fun to to keep track of it yeah plus it's not eight seasons (laughs) it's a lot easier how did you did you play the game at all i didn't but i (laughs) before right before the show came out i did download it and I am too scared to even leave the house. Um, so I did not get very far. Oh no, during the show. So I like, I know what's waiting for me. I'm not going out there. Right. So I, and I had just done like, what is it? Alien isolated too. It's like isolation. And I'm like, isolation. I'm like, I can't. The, so the VR version of alien isolation is probably no, pink VR. Like all the other VR is fun. Yeah. But Alien Isolation is like, they nailed, that's the perfect game for VR. What? Yeah. You're hiding under fucking desks oh my and stuff like, oh. Yeah. And like timing when you, you know, run across the room and stuff. Yeah. I actually, I actually, this is the nerdiest thing in the world, but I saw uh, someone had done a breakdown of the alien AI, like why no it way. finds you. So uh-huh. basically it, it, it does roam, mm-hmm. but. Uh, if you're a lo- if you're away from it for too long, it'll hop into the vents, which is just a, a dead zone. There's nothing up there, and then it it just te- basically teleports it closer to you, and then drops it out of a vent, and then it goes to fight. So there really is like no escape from that thing. And <laughs> yeah, and so the game, whatever. But when you're wearing the fucking goggles, you just oh, <laughs> I can't even imagine doing the VR version. Like I was safely like across from my TV. <laughs> But VR is like a whole nother level. Oh. I want to try, but it's very, the idea is very terrifying. Have you, have you done any VR? No. It's, it's surprise. like depending, apparently the new, what are you on PlayStation? Yeah. PS5. The, the, the PSVR 2 that's coming out is apparently outstanding. Like original P- PlayStation VR was okay. But the, yeah. the new one is apparently like leaps and bounds better than most PC options. Yeah, uh, and it's oh, only wow. like five hundred bucks, which is mm-hmm. expensive, but but low for might be even less than that is low for like VR. Oh um, wow! Yeah, I'll have to check it out. Definitely yeah. intrigued. And um, I did a new, I did a segment of VHS eighty five, and we've got some VR elements that are fun. So that definitely want to get that, to it. Was that Alex ninety nine? No, he did ninety nine, and eighty yeah, yeah, yeah. five's coming out. Oh, I don't know when I can. Actually, I don't even know if I can talk about it. We might have to not use this. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll. Uh, it. I don't know. It's been announced, but I. It's. Yeah, it's. Wait, but it's not out yet. Yeah, yeah. 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 Alex is a lot of fun. How do you feel about the uh, the end of uh, the Last of Us? Having not played the game, 
Um, morally at war. <laughs> yeah, that's that game. Uh, yeah, no, and it's great because it's so not about cordyceps ultimately. It's about this relationship too, and like what you would do for somebody that you love. Um. Uh, yeah, torn, but relatable, probably. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you were in that situation, I don't know. It was, it's funny too, because I remember them saying, like, oh, yeah, we're not going to do, because obviously the game, there's a ton of shooting or whatever. They're like, we're not going to do a ton of shooting in the game or in the, in the show. You know, it's not, it's not mm-hmm. going to be about like, it's not a first person shooter. And then, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen Last of Us, but like that, la- that last episode where, where Joel just goes off. Yeah. That's even though it's not that violent, that feels more like John Wick than John Wick has in like three movies. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's really uh it's really dark and really set in themes of humanity and, and you know, challenging um uh, aspects that we don't often talk about. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, and especially the uh, the question of it it doesn't necessarily tackle masculinity, but it does come face to face with like, oh, you know, what's what's an ex ranger type guy? How do how do you soften that in the face of mm-hmm. you know the mm-hmm. world collapsing? Yeah, it's, totally. Uh, it's it's literally just giving him his daughter back. Yes. Yeah. And I had done, I did a movie called The Wrath of Becky recently that was at South by and um, is it the last episode of The Last of Us or the episode before, but uh, Ellie has a total Becky moment of slasher moment, which was really great. Brought that was, to, I, be- <laughs> I believe Becky. that was third to last. Yeah, third yeah. The last episode, because then this, the one after that, Right, it is. Yeah, it's the third to last because because he had been stabbed at that point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was a tough episode. Good gravy. That was a super tough episode. Yeah. Have you seen? Like, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but have you seen a show that's been that well written recently? Because mm-hmm. it feels it feels like it came out of you know it's the same experience that we had with lat uh, with um everything everywhere you know we brought that film up on this podcast like 106 times i got to interview larkin about it before the movie came out me and larkin i've said this story a bunch but like we did the podcast and it didn't come out for a while so me and larkin were just sitting there like oh yeah i hope people like it and then when it came out it was nominated for like 11 oscars yes yeah conversation sounds kind of dumb because we're like yeah well you know we did our best yeah I love that though I love that we just don't know and then you get to follow the film on its journey and hope that it does well and um yeah I don't know I like that aspect yeah the uh I had seen in a in a few interviews that you did that uh you kind of came up the same way as me where it was like always just wanting to do you know you always had a camera or whatever but also something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast is um the prevalence of DVD special features in uh, yes in in history uh first of all do you have do you still have a dvd slash blu-ray collection (laughs) i do (laughs) um i do and i was a huge special features person and i also think too like it's important to to remember that i was just like a very enthusiastic audience member 
like right. first and foremost, you know. And yeah, my like first job was a movie in a movie theater, and then like I worked in news, like anything I could possibly do to watch and like consume stuff, and then understand like how it was made was like really important. But I think just like being captured by movies in the first place started the whole thing. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you remember a DVD that kind of showed you? Because some of the special features today, they're all just PR pieces, but there was some that were, you know, kind of interesting. And then there was like uh, one that I've named before is like the one on Hellboy 2 is longer mm -hmm. than the movie. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, yeah. the Lord of the Rings special editions have, I think it's like 12 hours of special features on it that, that literally I almost wanted to be the EPK guy more than a regular cinematographer. Like I just wanted to know, <laughs> yeah. you know, I wanted to be wall. Yeah. 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 No, I, I mean, my answer is Lord of the Rings for sure. Cause I was young, so young when they came out, but old enough to under, like to appreciate all of that stuff. And I definitely still have my parents, like, um, the extended version DVDs, like that are in the little the bookies, big, the books yeah, they get yeah. to like pull out and then unfolds and get all the discs. I definitely still have those. Um, yeah. And just like, the amount of practical effects and doing things in camera and that kind of magic is so, you know, was so intriguing to me. And I wanted to to do that. I also think like, like I had a great childhood. Like I was loved by my parents. I was told I could, I could pursue anything I wanted to pursue and all of that. But I think as an audience member, it's fun to like escape into those new worlds, you know? And I think escapism I think is underrated. Me too. <laughs> and I and I think no matter your situation, it's not because you're running necessarily running away from something or can't, you know, but I think being on set, I'm also escaping. And that's really fun. Like, I think, and that's why, like, I really do love doing so much genre work is because we're in a set that does not just does not exist. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's so, you know, the premise is so fantastical. It's like that is so much fun to just go to work and be you know, in, in something that just isn't of this world is so fun. And that's why like growing up like alien, it's like one of my favorite, my cat's name is Jonesy. Like that's like one of my favorite movies, <laughs> Jurassic oh. Park, like things that just like you would be on set and you, it just does not exist. And that is so amazing to me. Yeah. Alien was big for me too. That, yeah. cause I, that was like one of the first films that lit like 360 too. So yes, totally. <laughs> It is funny how like movies like that endure, but that, that one's the Blu-ray on that especially looks so good. looks like it was shot yes. yesterday. Also yeah. Twilight Zone. If you can get the Blu-rays for Twilight Zone, yeah. they look like mm -hmm. same thing. They rescan the negative, the whole thing. Um, yeah. You, you touched on it a second, but I think that would be an interesting thing to talk about is, uh, I, I don't believe that you, that there's like a tortured artist thing, but it is, it is funny that like as as creatives as as filmmakers there does seem to be a um societal push towards oh you're not you're not real unless you suffer you know like you you can't mm -hmm. if if you come from a happy childhood or if, or if you're a nepo baby as they say then you're then the art you make is not uh relevant you know mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. a strange it's a strange thing in america where we where we need to suffer to you know we're not we're not going to use your your car detailing service unless you have some sob backstory 
Like, you know, you can't right. just, your father can't have been a uh, car detailer. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I remember Reed Morano telling a story too of like, she was in film school for undergrad, I believe. And she was like, how can I be a director if I haven't even lived life? You know what I mean? And haven't, have, you know, not necessarily like sorrow, but just gone through stuff. And like, I think, and this is just such a complicated and profound discussion too, of just, we all have things and we're so complex that I don't think we can really make the claim of like, you have to go through things to be able to really tell your story because we've all gone through so much. And I think you can experience hardship in so many aspects, you know, regardless of your situation growing up, it could be your, you know, friend group, it could be health, it could be, you know, there's just so many elements and layers that we have to, to deal with. I, I will say like, I think experiencing loss and grief and all of those things have made me a better filmmaker in a way. I feel like it does give you perspective. And I think I'm trying not to rant, but just like, I think too. This is the perfect place to rant. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. <laughs> I think it's given, it's made me even love my job even more, which I didn't think was possible too, and really care about every aspect of it and really want to choose things that I can really get invested in and I really care about. Yeah. Um, yeah. It It is. Yeah. It's, it's something interesting. Cause like I, if you, let's say travel the world and meet all kinds of people and really gain a lot of life experience, somehow that is less than if you <laughs> lost a parent young or went to jail or, you know, whatever. It's like somehow we, mm-hmm. we pinned negative experiences as being more informative than any experience, yeah. Uh, which I don't subscribe to. Uh, right. I, I'm sure I did as as a youth. You know, I think we all have that weird like pain Olympics thing. Like, well, your your experience wasn't as bad as my. But like, um, I th- I think I suppose I agree with Reed in the sense that like, yeah, you, you do need to experience stuff. But I don't I don't necessarily subscribe to the more common idea that it has to be negative. Yeah. And, and I think too, like in film school where, you know, where she was too in her life, it's like, you are just, and she had experienced a lot. She's been through a lot. So I think it's just finding your voice too. Like all of these things are going to help form who you are as a storyteller and what you want to say as a storyteller. And that should really matter to you and not, it doesn't matter what, how that forms or what that is. It's unique to you. So I think it's like nice to be able to, no matter how long that process takes, really grasp, you know, what you want to do. And if you don't, that's okay too. You can, you know, it's, this is a huge collaborative process. You're going to be able to tell a lot of different stories and learn more about yourself along the way. Yeah. It's, uh, I, uh, lost that thought. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, now you know, it's me. I had it and then it, and then it went away. <laughs> I had no coffee today. I should have had that beforehand. Um, now, what was I going to say? Well, I guess whatever. We'll move the on. importance of coffee. When yeah. The importance of three two in the ADHD brain. Caffeine really. Uh, did you? Uh, were you always kind of? Um, were you? Were you more? Uh, oh, that's what it was. It was when did you? When did you know that you were finally? Um, 
able to speak with your voice. Because for me, I'm, I was just thinking about this the other day. I, I think it was like, I was, I'm 32 now. I think I was 28, 29 when I finally was like, okay, I trust that I know what I'm doing as a DP. I trust that I can deliver on a promise or a product or whatever it may be. Um, when was that for you? Do you remember, like, was there a specific moment? Because for me, I, I just kind of woke up one day and, and I was like, oh, you know what? Last time I thought about this, I wasn't here. And now I am. Like, I, I, I soft my way into it. Yeah. I would say, yeah, around the same age, like three or four years ago, maybe. Because yeah. like now I definitely, well, because I think too, like your confidence builds. And I definitely remember being a lot more self-deprecating and not confident in what I was able to do. And now, but I think, I think every project I'm like, oh, actually it's, it's now. Now I know what I'm doing as opposed to like a month ago when I thought I knew what I was doing. I think, I think it's constant. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I know I definitely, I'm definitely the most, I don't know if I had a moment, but I definitely feel like now I know my worth a lot more and I know that I, you know, I will fight the fights that I think are worth fighting and have more, much more confidence in my voice than I ever did. And my capabilities, like I can tell you, I can speak to budget and crew size and what I'm capable of doing and our day and what it looks like and all those things too, with a lot more confidence and, um, knowing that my voice is valid. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a, a relevant, I, I feel like I already probably know the answer here, but I, I'm gonna ask it anyway. Uh, was it you knowing more stuff or was it you doing more jobs? Both, <laughs> I think. Yeah, just having done more and you know, I don't think, I think as a DP too, you don't need to know all the answers, like for all the specific tedious details of what other technicians bring to the table. Like I think too, my team has grown. So we've grown together and we are able to tackle bigger and bigger projects. And I think it's a culmination of knowledge. And this is another interesting profound conversation we could have too, is like, I remember in film school, yeah, I remember in film school, they were like, one professor said, it's actually in your inexperience that creativity is, you have more creativity when you know less. Yes, I agree. And at, and at the time, I don't know if I agreed because, because I was like, well, when you, have more tools and you know more of what you can do, then your creativity blossoms. So I think, I don't know, I think both can be valid, but now I feel almost more creative and able to take risks knowing more. And I think I was too afraid back then, which I think many people might have the opposite experience. The, the jumping off point for that thought was, uh, you know, I, I hate watch plenty of YouTube. And, uh, just every once in a while you get a nugget every once in a while, someone who isn't, uh, you know, not on my level, that's a horrible thing to say, but like someone who's more in the, in the kind of internet creator space, every once in a while, someone comes up with something good. And that's, so I'm just yeah. watching the bit. And then the rest of them were like, if you use the black pro mist, I'm like, Fuck. um, but, but, uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it's, um, that uh, constant need to educate oneself, mm -hmm. I think, leads to um, 
job slash creative paralysis. If you're constantly trying to learn, you won't feel confident enough to create. And I, and I agree with your professor where it's, uh, creativity is the, is essentially, um, finding ways to dig yourself out of a hole when you don't have a shovel. It's not totally, you know, it's not like, oh, I've been given the perfect script and now I'm going to light it perfectly in ways that are interesting. It's usually problem solving. Yeah. 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 (laughs) No, totally. You, (laughs) yeah, no, that's it. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think it's like, but, but I still think when you, when you learn all those, the, the quote, quote rules and all the elements and everything and like how certain camera support moves and works. Sure. It also, it does open up your brain to new possibilities also on a bigger scale. And I also think that, you know, I don't know. I just think it, I think knowledge can also open up your brain too. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I did more things. I think it's definitely, I mean, if you saw the rest of this office, it's, I have about probably 300 American cinematographers here, you know, every book under the sun over there. Like I, I'm, I'm a big knowledge gapper, but it was that, um, uh, gap I had to jump to actually not being afraid and Mm -hmm. working Mm -hmm. that, that was, that was tough and realizing like, you'll never learn anything or you'll never learn everything. But at a certain point, you, you you do have the base knowledge. You know, having that trust in yourself is totally. For me. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it's about the knowledge is about trust in yourself. I think, and also when as you as you work on more and bigger stuff, you kind of have to know what's coming, and you have to know what will work. You know what I mean? Like even just logistically, camera wise, and what right. you can do in a space. So I think it's like that also gives grants freedom in a way of like. I know this will work in this, in the woods where we need a specific tool or whatever. Um, I had another thought on the, uh, oh, I just went back to UCLA to talk to students there. Cool. And my buddy who is teaching was like, what do you want to light for them? And I was like, lighting is so accessible. Let's not do that. Let's talk about agents, the union pitching on a movie like things we never talked about because a lighting and camera is you like you are going to figure that out and what are you just what are you going to do you're going to go copy what i how i set up a light outside of a window or something like you know what i mean and i what well, you teach that like oh here's three exactly. point lighting great yeah yeah i don't know what to tell you uh and it's again it's so accessible and you have to do it to like learn what you like and it's that's so different for everyone and it's like let's have the the how do you um have a personal life and be a dp that travels all the time like let's talk about that stuff because that stuff we never talked about in film school and that yeah. we we did light a little bit on the stage but that conversation was so much more fruitful than okay i'm gonna set up this 50 mil lens we're gonna throw this hmi over here we're gonna you know what i mean i'm gonna use muslin you know whatever like that stuff was way more meaningful to them than me lighting a scene so what uh what are the students of today because this podcast is supposed to be at least at at its best 50 percent educational 
usually it's probably about 20, but uh, what were the students of today kind of concerned about? You know, what, what were the things that they, they don't know? Cause when, when I'm, I assume you're about my age, when we were in college, like getting a 5d was a huge deal. And now, oh, yeah. now it's like every, all the tools are just available. So what are the, what are they stressing about now? Is it, is it 6k or, or, um, you know, what, what is it? <laughs> um, good question. We, but we didn't talk about too much of the technology, which is interesting. I think, good. um, yeah, I mean, I would say like lenses and camera, but now I think everyone has access to Alexa and, you know, rental houses are so generous with, you know, letting people try things and take things out and um but i think a big thing i noticed was there's a huge awareness of pursuing the work life and i don't actually like the word balance because i it's not a balance like you're gonna put time it's your life yeah it's your life (laughs) and uh i think a big thing was how do you be happy and have a good family life and relationship and all of that stuff while working. Cause I remember thinking everybody would be like, Oh, Julia, you're going to travel so much for work. And at that time I never did that. I was like, yeah, right. And now I don't even feel like I live in my house anymore. Like it's, you know, and it's like, how do you do that? How do you like maintain that? And I think that was like a huge, I didn't think about that in film school. I was like, uh, yeah, get my DSLR and like, how can I shoot as much as possible and be on set as much as possible and just be consumed in it. That's all I cared about. Were you, and now uh, it's like, I don't want to work all the time. How do I have a, you know, a healthy personal life? And I'm like, I respect you guys for caring about this. Yeah. I, I like as, as goofy as, uh, you know, we'll clown on, gen z all the time or or whatever <laughs> but but they do seem far more aware of most things than i certainly was yeah yeah which know. is great yeah. yeah i think uh there there's a there's a bright as much as i have made jokes on this podcast but i i do i do see a bright future for the rest of us um unfortunately they won't be our bosses so we still won't get paid well but right. Once they are our bosses, great. <laughs> yeah, totally. Unless it's the AI. Um, when you when you were in college, was were you um, more of a technical kind of like was it the the sort of tech that brought you into it, or was it more of the artistry? For me, it was um, the tech. I think. Yeah, um, I think it started as the tech, but then it switched and i remember mandy walker came and did like a dp in residence thing and she was like i she actually UCLA. yeah and ucla she did light for us but it was great because she put us to work and we got to see her lead her team like she brought her ac her dit like that was really valuable to watch her command a crew and i remember her saying like I am an artist and then a technician as a cinematographer because the DIT, you know, these technicians, your gaffer, your key grip, they're going to know more about their departments than I am. And I thought that was really valuable. And I think almost kind of gave me permission to lean in to the artistry and not feel the pressure to like stay up to date. C300 Mark II is coming out. What are the specs? You know, like uh, all that stuff. 
because I felt, I think, you know, going through film school and stuff that there was a lot of pressure to like, do you know the latest and greatest and all, all of the codecs and all of this stuff and just, it's nice to not feel that pressure anymore. Yeah, the, the giving yourself permission to lean into the artistry is a great way of putting something I've been thinking for a minute, which was like, at a certain point, I felt like I was super saturated on tech and I was like, well, what's next? And I realized, especially like even doing these interviews, like, oh, it's, it's literally just being the theater kid that I was and leaning back into that. Cause I, cause I yeah. escaped that thinking that that wasn't going to take me anywhere. And the, mm -hmm. and the, and knowing the tech would, which, you know, if I was going to be a first AC, sure. Sure. But, but, uh, yeah. yeah, it's literally like the thing, the thing that we all fear is like being our, being our high school selves. And it's kind of like, you know, you look at someone like Keanu Reeves, you're like, there's a the theater kid. <laughs> that man is almost 60 and he's yeah. being his theater kid <laughs> self, you know? Yeah. And look at the yeah. success. Yeah. But as a DP too, like you're not even going to push the buttons anymore. Right. You know what I mean? You're not. You're not doing that. You're there to execute what the director needs and and feel things and watch, you know, performance and decide where the camera's going and things like that. It becomes way less about all of the other things, yeah. which obviously we still know specs. We set the specs. We get, you know, resolution, all that stuff is so important and I'm very much still the nerd I was, but I think it becomes ultimately less about that. Yeah, the, the way my directing teacher called it was, uh, your job is to make the audience feel the way you want them to feel when you want them to feel it. It's mm -hmm. not about setting the light, necessarily. Right. Um, talk to me about your uh, mentorship with uh, Johnny Simmons. How did that kind of uh, impact your trajectory and, and, and maybe like, um, you know, what, what where do you think you'd be if, if he wasn't... Uh, kind of nudging you along. Yeah, Johnny, I met at UCLA. He taught a class there and uh, he was very much also like artist, like light and 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 how to shape it and uh, how to feel, you know, when things feel right and when they don't. And just, I think a huge supporter, he supports so many amazing cinematographers in every part of their journey um and he's such a supportive person in the community I feel like and I think again just gives you permission to to be who you want to be and um you know I have his photography in my house like I just love the images he creates and he's been doing it a long time and I feel like has such a unique voice and yeah I don't know I think he was just a really big inspiring force in my life that I think allowed me to, to, you know, be really inspired and not give up. And cause you know, right after, right out of film school, it's very scary. It's really, you know, how do you do this? How do you put food on the table as a DP? And so. Our time. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> I think too, like he, I remember sitting with him and he was picking the negatives out of his photos to do his first gallery. You know, and he was like, I think too, he's inspired me with still images a lot as well. And really, you know, I never tried to be a photographer. I, a lot of DPs like go out and set an assignment for themselves when they travel or what, you know what I mean? And I don't try to do that. I try to let photography in my life happen really organically. 
And um, I think that was also inspiring was to kind of revisit um, my film. I, I own too many stills cameras, which I know a lot of us do, and, and just revisit those and uh, do more of that, which is always fun. I uh, So I, I loved taking pictures as, as you know, throughout my life, I, I was a events photographer for Red Bull for a while, which wasn't like creatively fulfilling. But from what I remember, I had a great time. Uh, the, but uh, the interestingly enough, it was, I believe, the first season of this podcast. I interviewed Tim Ives, and he was working. Oh, cool. On, yeah, he was working on Halston, or had just finished mm -hmm. Halston. Mm -hmm. So we were talking to him and then I, I brought up the question of like photography and he goes one second and brings back a stack of photo books like this and just walks me through all of his favorite photo books. And I was like, cool. So I bought about half of them, the ones that I could afford. <laughs> They're all on my desk here. And, and literally like Tim Ives got me back into still photography, like and yeah. thinking about it as like, like an artistic art form. Cause the same thing, I don't go around giving myself, um, projects or anything like that but now i do i didn't own any stills cameras and now for the most part i had a medium format which you the the rz67 you can't carry around with you it's you know the size of a lunchbox um yeah. but now yeah i've got plenty of like pocket i've got one for every occasion i got a pocket camera i got a film camera with a pancake i got this medium format yeah. fuji um but when you see great light you gotta document it totally but I used to do that thing where I'd travel and I'd take the Mamiya and the M6 and the whatever. And I'm like, I don't like doing this to myself. I also like don't want to lug lenses around, you know? Yeah. The, Leica, the Leica Q2 is like my favorite stills camera right now because it's just fast. I don't need a huge setup. It's just my own BTS photos on set of my setups or, you know, travel. But again, it's not like I just don't want to do that to myself anymore where I'm like, it's a whole project and... I don't know. I'd rather live in the moment and let it just happen. Literally, I was going to say, like, having the nicest camera you own takes you, you're constantly like protecting it. And mm -hmm. so that takes you out of the moment. And then also just scanning for, you know, instead of being at the party, you're like, how do I get the best photo, which is useless. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you also, I, I think you remember things differently if you're always just trying to capture it through your phone or your camera. Like, I, you're not going to remember it the same. Yeah. Yeah. That's what that, that's why I, I don't have a Q2 cause I'm not cool, but I do have a, an X 100 V, which apparently makes me very cool. The youth, cool. the youth love the uh, excellent. <laughs> I was on TikTok for five minutes and apparently I'm an asshole for owning one because no one else can get one. <laughs> do you, uh, or do you have any like photo books or anything like that? Anything that was kind of, um, stuck out to you as like uh standing out from from the other photography you see besides johnny's obviously not really i mean i do have photo books and stuff but i think it was like a lot of um the asc members work in still brought me back to that stuff you know what i mean and like created that love because i hadn't done stills for a long time and um you know i kind of like that their their stuff seeing their galleries and their work really like kind of reignited my love for it in a way um were you able to uh do any darkroom stuff uh when you were in college or anything like that no and i shouldn't oh, reveal no. this but i've never done any darkroom stuff and it breaks my heart and ucla our edit bays 
in the film school were right across from the dark room and I'd always be like in the in the editing lab with Avid and I'd look across out the door and I'd see the dark room sign on the door across the hall and I'd always be like damn one day I want to go develop my own photos and I never have and it's a tragedy and I need to do it those times were definitely having more fun I (laughs) I know (laughs) I want to so bad I'm sure Um, I still shoot a lot of film right if I was just like, can I come in where in the dark? <laughs> Honestly, just and if, and if they say no at first flex, be like, yeah, look at all these fucking movies I shot. And then, okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I, I could use that, but yeah. <laughs> I have an IMDb. People are very impressed by an IMDb. <laughs> yeah, no, I have to. I really, really want to because I shoot a lot of film and I scan my own negatives, but that's about the only thing. That I, I don't do. even do that. I send it all to the dark room in San Clemente. And then I get back scans before the film meeting gets back to me and I'm happy yeah. with their work. But yeah, the dark, the dark room was definitely a lot of fun. How, um, I've said this a bunch, but uh, I'd love your take on it. Like being, obviously you had a more well-rounded uh, experience going to film school. Some, you know, people don't go to film school, but how did yeah. the editing specifically impact you as a DP? I feel like. So I thought I wanted to be an editor first when I discovered, like, don't want to date myself, but like Adobe Premiere Elements came out in high school or something. And the magic of, uh, because I remember editing with VHS, like recording to a VHS tape, you'd record from the TV and you'd have to like cut in order or whatever, because I'd make like montages and things. Um, I would cut like game film scenes together and create like cool reels from games and stuff like Interesting. that. Interesting. So stupid. Um, but I- Oh, remember- no, that's better than what I did, which was film and no edit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That too, you like shoot in sequence and that's the thing. But I remember having a computer and being able to, discovering the magic of like having clips and being able to put them wherever you wanted to music and, and create a feeling. Um, so I think- I, I quickly learned that I cannot sit in a room or a chair, like one spot for very long. And I definitely belong on set. And I think that's like the best place in the world. But editing definitely, like my love for that, definitely I keep in the back of my head and I'm always thinking about the edit and how things go together and timing and things like that. So I think it's really important to to have a grasp on it and an appreciation for that when you're shooting because obviously you're, you are handing over everything that that editor gets. So it better be, <laughs> it better have good, good, you know, c- coverage, et cetera, in it to, to help form the ultimate thing. Yeah. Well, and also knowing for me, it's always been knowing what shot I don't need. And sometimes yes. that means killing your baby, but you know, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Or not and, handing and- the editor stuff that they could kill you with. Totally. And that's another thing too that's evolved is I think I I started out overshooting or think, you know, like, oh, gotta get sure. these options. And now like one one uh scrambled, which is at South by I remember we shot the very pristine and I was like we had a couple things on the shot list of like coveragey things or you know, lens up and get a close up. But I was like, this let's just do a oneer. It doesn't need anything else. Right. Does that feel right to you? And it did. And it was like amazing. So yeah, it's like I've become even more minimalistic in knowing what'll work and what you don't need, which is awesome. Yeah. 
you know, what's, what's Fincher's thing. It's about what you don't do that informs yes. the audience. Yeah. How, how with Scrambled, how was it working with a director who's also an actor and the writer? It's a tall order for a DP in a way, because I think, you know, director already needs to trust you so much, but now Leo is in front of the camera in every scene. And if it's an OTS on another actor, she's the shoulder. <laughs> like she doesn't right. get to be a commoditor. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I had done it before where I had a director, you know, I've had directors in their films, but, you know, this was like 20 days so fast. So many scenes. There's quite oh, a few wow. scenes that aren't even in the movie. And so we shot even more, you know, and there's like a really healthy amount of locations. Um, but it was, I mean, like I read the script. I knew she was an amazing writer. We started prepping and I felt really good about her as a director. And then on set, I was like, oh my gosh, we're all falling in love with this character in an amazing performance. So it was very quick to to realize like, Leah's pretty brilliant and knows what she's doing. And so it was about me, you know, meeting her there and really being able to let her trust me and know that we got it and run the set with our AD Eden and really like, you know, keep us moving along because Leah wasn't a monitor and we didn't have the time to have her looking at playback all the time. Right. So, you know, she can't watch it before we move on. We have to move on. So, um, it was great. Like we prepped, but we did it enough to like, cause again, I think you feel things on the day and you're like, you know what, actually we should go over here and go on this lens instead because you're just feeling the power of performance and things are going to change. So we left room to be spontaneous and Leah and I could pivot together. And um, so we did enough preparation to where we could, yeah, we had to form trust really quickly because we also had never worked together before. Right. How much time, how much prep time did you have? Uh, I think formally two weeks, but we, we started talking right away and turned it into like three. Um, Still quick. And of course, yeah, so quick. And I think I, I also was looking up, I think I got this script like less than two months before they wanted to go. So it was like, we need, let's go get coffee right now. Yeah. <laughs> like start dissecting the script. What part of town are you in? Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Word for word, my first question. It's <laughs> like, yeah. where are you? Uh, so yeah, it was very much like, we need to get to know each other, get to know what, you know, she wanted to do with the movie and, um, and go from there. So how were you able to 20, a uh, 20 day shoot is quick, especially because the film looks so good. What, uh, what were the kind of things that helped you stay on your feet and stay nimble? Like where were you keeping a, a light lighting package? Do you have an ethos for the lighting, the ex interiors, exteriors? Like how, how are you approaching all that visually? Yeah, it was definitely, um, well, so this was a movie that I think is like, it's modern day LA. It's rooted in realism. I wanted to, you know, the sources were things that I had available to us, like windows and like what is what exists in all the spaces that we have. You know, we had a, like a lot of different spaces to shoot in. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, we had a lighting package that was versatile and covered us in night exterior, night interior, day exterior, day interior, you know, different, you know, uh, we were... Uh, my gaffer Tom is one of my best friends and so incredible and proactive and he had everything on his iPad. So we were, you know, going to adjust things. Oh yeah, the, uh, the wireless DMX. Yes. Um, like on all, all my gosh, such a time saver. 
Um, so being able to do those things and, you know, and it, it was a, you know, small movie. So kind of how do we get a package that's versatile and allows us to do the things and ultimately protect the time Leah has to do all these scenes, you know, and, and, and make sure fe- she feels like she's getting enough takes and enough, you know, take them out was definitely a struggle because we had so much to do and, so, you know, angles and scenes and company moves and just all this stuff. So, um, I definitely think she felt that too, but I, you know, it's, it's, how do you give talent enough time to like try things and, you know, when 20 days, you unfortunately don't get as much as you want to in terms of like variety and stuff. You just got to go. You got to keep going. Yeah. I, I can't remember who it was, but it was a director who was also the actor. Maybe it was like Jonathan Frakes or someone, but uh, they were saying that the thing that they had to learn was as the director to actually do enough takes for themselves because they felt like they were rushed. Did you experience that where she would, she'd be, uh, Leah would be like, all right, I, we got it. And you're like, you did two takes. I don't like, I don't even know if you felt it out. We didn't even rehearse this yet. Like, no, no, no. Next, <laughs> next shot, next shot. Yes. But that was such a positive thing. Like Leah knew this character inside and out. She knew her script inside and out. So she definitely was like so efficient and knew exactly when she got it. And because she wasn't a monitor, we, we just had the system where she wouldn't even call cut. She'd just look at me and be like, good. And then and I'd be like, yep, let's go. <laughs> so it was like, if she had the performance and I had it technically in camera, we were good, you know? And, right. you know, it, you know, that doesn't mean it's perfect all the time. And like, you know, um, there were some frames we had to rotate and post because we we're like, off level, you know, like little tiny things that we had to adjust later. But again, I think, you know, film is so much about knowing what battles to fight for and what, you know, where do you need to to take more time for certain things and where can you make up time and, and stuff like that. So, you know, if I couldn't shape a light off of a wall that I know I can take down later, I'm not going to fight, you know, if the talent's in front of my camera, I'm not going to stop everybody because I need to, you know, set a flag or something. I'm going to go because. So we have again, all four. Yeah. But again, you know, it's like little, you know, things like that, that I'm not going to interrupt this process to do something for me that I know, you know what I mean? It's like, that is really so integral in our jobs too, is like knowing when to push and when not to push. Yeah. The, uh, the example that comes to mind, which I'm, I know who, which DP it was, but, uh, the, remember the clip of, uh, Christian Bale yelling at someone on mm-hmm. set. Do you know which mm-hmm. DP that was? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's an example of what you shouldn't do. <laughs> and going to set a light during the take. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I think this is a big thing that we learn is like that space is so sacred and you do not interrupt it if, you know, especially we're moving so fast. We have so much to do. I don't have time. And again, if you were, this is why it's so important to be ready as the DP and the op and everybody before that talent walks on. Like once you release second team, you better be fucking ready because you do not get to say, oh, now I see something out of a window. Now I, you know, whatever. Like you need to really check yourself <laughs> because yeah. you cannot interrupt this process. And, and again, Leah's in front of, the camera all the time so we need to like 
really know what we're doing. Um, and, you know, Leah's amazing and was down, you know, she, she saw something and she's, you know, she's got her little monitor and while she's over on the camera, she'll be like, okay, like she, she was down to, to go with it and adjust, but talent might not always be, uh, you know, so down to, to find the thing that we're, you know, we're trying to figure out. So yeah, yeah gotta be ready. The way I heard it described was like, if you're a, um, recording person like you know the person recording bands to hit mm-hmm. record before the band walks in and just have a microphone somewhere because you never know when when paul mccartney's gonna walk in and start noodling on the guitar you know in practice yes. like, ah, you know yes yeah <laughs> to be ready uh yes. is so important it sounds like you did a lot of um basically directing yourself having to to you know obviously the dp and the, and the director have such a uh uh hip connected relationship but it sounds like you had to carry a lot more of that work yeah i think so um, in that. a way no 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 yeah just in a way of just like continuity things and um communicating with other department heads and if i'm noticing something on wardrobe you know i i had unspoken permission to be like hey let's hey can we fix this thing or whatever before we were all um yeah i just i just had to be even more so aware of everything which we already have so much to think about so you know it took it took all of us really you know banding together to make sure we had leah covered and 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 everything was the way it needed to be without thinking too hard can you can you remember like maybe a lighting setup that you uh really nailed and were were happy with and one that maybe gave you a bit of a challenge (laughs) without thinking too hard uh um yeah, I think um, one thing that really worked out is there's a support group scene in the movie, and there's a huge circle of, of women sitting and telling stories. And I think um, we had to change locate, or we, we were struggling to find a location with that one that felt like, you know, a room where you'd have kind of a support therapy session. Couldn't find a high session. school basketball court. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not a high school basketball card. Uh, but didn't too, feel too churchy or, you know, like specific. We kind of wanted more of an ambiguous space. Um, and that turned out really pretty. Leah has a really long monologue and the windows and everything ended up. It actually, and everyone was actually really happy with how that looked. And it was very simple a couple of lights outside and, and things to supplement inside. Um, one thing that was really tough, but I'm actually really proud of is I can't say too much about what happened in the scene, but Leah's character decides to go somewhere she shouldn't go and it's a night exterior. It's a night exterior. And I really pride myself on like, I shoot and get all the info on the sensor. There's nothing that's gone. You know what I mean? There's no shadows that are totally unretrievable and there's no highlights that are like grossly white and just right were you guys so alexa yeah it was alexa mini lf yeah um yeah so i was really proud me too i was really proud of the way we exposed the night you know and you can see the houses behind her when she's at a window and like things like that um but again that was really hard and there's a scene where someone is on standing on the uh the like balcony of the house looking down and you know again 
small movie couldn't backlight that person and that was kind of a little bit of a heartbreak but in in general like that scene that you know night exteriors are so hard and you're trying not to be you know you're permanent but you can't be intrusive to other houses and things like that um i was happy with what we were able to do for that because that scene is also really important yeah i i was actually going to ask like on a smaller budget what are some uh night exterior tips because i feel like if you can't fly a fucking balloon or like three condors it feels very restrictive <laughs> i mean sensors are great definitely, now, so get away with a lot but yeah yeah definitely no balloons or condors on scrambled um but i think you know i think a great trick too is putting little sources in the back like little AX3s or little, like a Lico pointed at camera. You've got little, you know, bokeh things to play with. Um, I think uh, quality is really important. Like, I think there's a whole controversial thing about like, is Moonlight hard or soft? I know it's hard, but I think on camera, it can sometimes feel a little better when it's soft. It can feel a little bit uh, more naturalistic in a way if you've just got, you know, exposing things and it's soft and it's, not drawing attention to itself if you're doing like moaning ambience, um, especially outside. And I think, I think that was really important. So, so, you know, lighting Leah and the other characters, but also really taking care of your backgrounds is really important and making sure you've got exposure. Yeah. When I, whenever I think of hard mood light, I think of like Terminator two, like that blue, you know, backlit thing. Yeah. And it yeah. never, it's never looked natural. Even as a kid, I was like, that's not the moon. Yeah. <laughs> but you, but go out, you go outside on a full moon and you, your shadow's on the ground. Like it is hard. It's the yeah. sun. It's sunlight ultimately. So it it's like. feel right. You no, know, it doesn't feel right. <laughs> I think in some instances it does, but I think for Scrambled, it was very much of like, my goal here is just to like expose the house and like see everything so that we can then, you know, Leah pops out of the background and you know, is beautifully keyed and all that stuff. And you've got exposure and texture because I think night exterior, it's like about creating layers of texture. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you have, um, much conversation with your, your colorist or, or was that kind of out of your hands? Um, we did, we had a call, uh, uh, to talk about the look. We had a lot, um, that was from a different colorist that I work with a lot that I felt really confident in. So I didn't actually have a lot to the change. It was just about consistency and like, you know, cooling things off if they were feeling too warm. I think the lot was ultimately really warm. So just like balancing things in the end. We didn't go in a crazy direction in color. We kind of kept it. Um, And I, I always try to do that. I always try to have a really cool lot that I'm excited about and do as much in camera as I can. And then it's just about like, you know, consistency and things like that. And, you know, Scrambled was fortunate to have a couple of days with two cameras. So just making sure that oh, they nice. look the same and things like that. Yeah. I, I would say that like probably like 70, 80% of the DPs I've interviewed are all pretty much on the like one show lot train, maybe two, if they're going to have a different one for like night. But, um, the the idea of like a different look for every scene i think is completely out the window i think i've maybe interviewed two people who had that ethos or like or like a dit who was just really hands-on um yeah yeah 
Yeah. And we didn't even have like an actual DIT on Scrambled. We had, we were just downloading and creating daily. And so I didn't have like live color grading or anything. Um, but yeah, it was one single LUT, but I've done things like, like lucky that I did in 2019 had like a couple LUTs that were really fun. Like, cause the third act is crazy. So it's like an extra saturated, like collation and all this crap, like on, yeah, one LUT for the end, which is really cool. So it's fun to mix them, but I think you really gotta have a reason to do it. So this was, yeah, the one show LUT. And you were able to uh, keep the LUT f- that you liked from before, or did you have to call that colorist and be like, hey, could you send me that? <laughs> um, this was a new one for Scrambled from that colorist, but it was based on another movie LUT. But that gotcha. movie LUT was colder. So I was like, can I get a little warmer and a little softer LUT? Or scrambled and that's what I used. Well, that's yeah. nice. Some some colors. I uh speaking of Reed Murano, she was uh working on a, a project with uh my friend Nick and uh we were having lunch the other day and he was like, uh, oh yeah, you know, I got I got this whole pack of Lutz from Reed and I was like, Can I see him? He goes, Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And I was like, What bro, I'm not gonna use them or anything. I just wanna see him. And he's like, Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <Like> directors. <laughs> Yeah, they're definitely people's like secret sauce sometimes yeah. for sure. I I uh, over the pandemic. You can see mine, Kenny. Though, please send it to me. <laughs> I I over the pandemic, I became a colorist because I couldn't go out and shoot, and all my stuff's like corporate work, so that was dead, right? Um, mm-hmm. and so, but I had plenty of friends who had made stuff that needed finishing, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm that kind of nerd who has a powerful enough computer. That I'm like, send it to me. So I did like a couple features and a couple docs. And, uh, I really like coloring. Like if, if I wasn't, uh, you know, in love with being a DP, I would absolutely pivot to coloring. You get to stay in your own house. I know, you know how many times cool. I haven't had to put on pants. <laughs> yeah. I don't have pants on right now. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, bye. But. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's awesome. And it's so much fun for us too. Like color is like so much fun going to the theater and being able to really like sculpt again and like revisit everything. It's really cool. Yeah. Well, and it's, uh, you know, if someone says, Oh, I hated this shot, it really hurts. But if someone says, Oh, I don't like this color. I'm like, all right, we'll change it. I don't fucking care. You know, it's like, (laughs) it's very, uh, the ego doesn't need to be as uh, hardened when you're a colorist, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well for me, I'm sure for some, (laughs) yeah. I said this in the last interview. I get to interview uh, Jill Bogdanovich at some point, and I'm very excited to. Oh, that's awesome! She's I'm great. really. Yeah. She's so good. I met her at the uh, Kodak Awards, and I just want to yeah. be like, so what do you want from a DP, and what do you want to stop seeing from DP? Like, you tell me what you want, so I can be better yeah. for uh, colorists. Yeah. You know. Yeah, my goal is to always get there and have the colorist feel like so much is already there. Yeah. You know what I mean, and that they just get to make it better and make it their own you know like we get to do something new with it but it's in a really good spot for them (laughs) it doesn't feel like it has to be repaired in any way yeah yeah polishing (laughs) instead of fixing yeah exactly do you do you have uh any uh, this is a terrible question but i've already started it uh any uh anything that you know like always kind of the, the the lights in the background is a great example but anything that kind of adds a little production value to your shots that uh you know, in a pinch, you're like, well, this'll make it better. I'm, I'm thinking for film students right now, you know, something that'll, mm-hmm. like, well, if you, if you got nothing, you can do this. 
what far side keys the obvious that we were just talking about this in the last episode like yeah it's it's not a rule but it always does kind of look better <laughs> it does look better um yeah the sources in the back is kind of my favorite like i did a student film when i was in film school in the desert and to avoid it feeling like a soundstage i bought i don't know 20 strings of christmas lights walked 500 feet out from where we were shooting and like made a city like it looks like that's a city such a smart idea well done <laughs> that's a great idea because it's like how do you I, I don't know i think that's like the thing that i'm always thinking about is how do you create texture and like i also think okay okay something i would say is always try to have a highlight in your frame because otherwise it'll feel really flat mm. so if you can create it you know if it is uh, a, a source or if you're against a wall like try to get a little bit of the window or just on the edge you know just like have a highlight somewhere i think it helps a lot um a practical or like whatever um i just did a commercial last week and this character gets up off of a couch and on the couch setup he's got you know there's a couple little practicals and things but then when he gets up and i shifted to my two it was like so flat so we put something else in the deep space and it just like made the whole frame better you know just like thinking about sources i think is really important those little uh aperture mcs have really mm -hmm. been a godsend for me in the yes. in, the, in those regards just put little puck lights i mean tubes are obviously great but just little like puck lights hidden behind a vase yeah. behind you know <laughs> behind the yeah. um, fucking painting i don't know just you can put them anywhere yeah, yeah. Magnet, mine is magnet yeah, mine is get three a three AX3s on like a triple header on a stand and go put them across the sidewalk. And now you've got some sort of, I don't know. I don't know. what It doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like in the background. <laughs> and they're just little light sources and it just makes it sound much better. Yeah. It lights up a dark patch where otherwise you'd have nothing. Well, and, and it's something like, I feel like I knew this intrinsically, but it took you saying it for me to like actually think about it. But the idea of, just going back to the idea of night exteriors is like, how do you light the whole space? You don't have to, you create the illusion that you did by putting those lights in the background. Yes. And then it, you know, yeah. it sells, it sells the idea, which, you know, is half the battle is just being a magician, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, uh, I should let you go cause we're starting to go over time, but, uh, uh no, no, it's not your fault. It's, I, I'm trying to be respectful of your time. I had one podcast that went for three and a half hours and uh i had Whoa. to chop the hell out of that because a lot of it was like me and him going we can't talk about this but <laughs> yeah um, so i'm trying to be better this season about you know yeah yeah being respectful of people's time there's shit to do um but uh i i end the podcast we'll have to have you back because i feel like we could probably do another two hours but uh <laughs> totally um but or you live in la we can fucking hang out anyway i want to have i want to have a uh uh We've done now, I think you'll probably be around episode 100 and something. Um, I want to have like a DP mixer for just only the guests of the podcast and their like friends. Uh, oh, I, cool. I have some friends that own restaurants, like nice bars and restaurants around there. So I'm like, if I could just figure that out, I yeah. feel like that'd be a pretty cool. And because the, the company that uh, distributes this podcast owns film tools oh, no or way. is film tools, I guess. Um, so I feel like we get like a bunch of sponsors to like pay for it. If we just allow like whenever Ari to just set up a camera and be like, you want to look at the 35. So in one room, we'll just have like 35 fucking Raptor and a couple lights. And then the other rooms are the parties that 
That's cool. Um, so you can come to that. This is the first time I've told anyone. Okay. Um, I'll figure that out. But okay. Two questions that I ask every uh, DP at the end of the podcast. First one, uh, everyone likes to ask about. No, we'll put that one next. Uh, if you were to uh, schedule a double feature of Scrambled and another movie, what would the other movie be? Well, <laughs> I don't know whether to pick something similar or something totally different. It's your oyster. You can do whatever you want. Jeff Cronenwinth picked uh, for being the Ricardos, um, Alien versus Predator. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> I I was going to say Juno because it was... Sir inspiration for scrambled but then i'm like are you going through too much emotional trauma (laughs) (laughs) so let's say alien because we need a refresh because it's my favorite and it's a refresher and you get to like do something totally different and crazy yeah that'd be good i mean uh uh uh, strong female lead still with both you've got some similarities there exactly you know she's just got a different set of problems (laughs) yeah Yeah. And if and an alien three has to deal with pregnancy. There you go. So you'll make your way back to this whole, you know, yeah, yeah. having children in your future. <laughs> yeah. Um and then in oh man, I just remembered the beginning of Alien Three is so brutal when it's just like, remember that kid? She's dead. <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh. Man, I should have prepped for this question. Oh no, the next one's worse. Uh no point. <laughs> Uh, everyone, the uh, everyone really freezes up on this one, but I, I love it. Um, a lot of people will ask like, oh, what's the best piece of advice you ever got? And it's always like, oh, stick with it. I hate that. What's the worst piece of advice you ever got or heard someone get? It doesn't have to be directed dr- straight to you. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I know I have a juicy answer for this somewhere in the past. I know the best piece of advice. Well, we'll take that while you think. Can I pivot to that? <laughs> you, you, can, best... you can addendum. <laughs> <laughs> the best thing that I think I heard someone say, and now I use it all the time, is that to a DP, locations are our cast. You can mm-hmm. only do so much with a bad location. And so much of cinematography is what I'm pointing the camera at. And if you've got a shit location, I don't know what to tell you. Like... It's, it's the reason yeah. I've started interviewing uh, set design or um, um, art department people. I've only interviewed like three, but yeah, anytime I talk to production designers, it's always like a wealth of information. Yeah. That's that's helpful for DPs, you know? Totally. Um, yeah. I mean, I feel like the worst stuff is like, or the worst things people would say is really to be the feeling of that you have to be so wrapped up in your own journey and so focused on yourself um, or that, I don't know. Like, and I think it's so much about listening to other people and consuming other people's work and it's not just about you kind of thing. I don't know. I know there's a juicy answer because I've worked with a lot of shitty people in the past and I feel like 
<laughs> they said horrible things to me. <laughs> I would definitely, I would, I would definitely think of something. But yeah, I don't know. I should put that in the brief. Honestly, it's cutting out my brain. Yeah. Well, it's probably for the best. I've, I've, I've stumped enough people with this one that I probably should put it in the like booking link. Like, hey, by the way, these two are coming. <laughs> yeah, because then I could think of a gem. Someone said. We could, uh, we'll put it in the, in the show notes if you think of something. But between now and like <laughs> two months from now, this fucking podcast comes. I'm so backed up. I've got like. That's great. Twenty. No, it's oh, it's great for me because I don't have to like do it, especially with like South by or Sundance and stuff. I do like fifteen in a week. But the problem oh. is, the problem is we'll have you know like the PR. She's gone now, but the PR people will be like, "Hey, when's that coming out?" And I'm like, "You gave me fifteen interviews. This this comes out week. Um, what do you want me to do?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. You guys don't yeah. pay me. No one pays me. You think I'm gonna? <laughs> this is gonna yeah. be weekly. This is for the audience. Yeah. Um. Actually, there, before I let you go, there was, apropos of almost nothing, uh, it did occur to me, you had mentioned like, oh, the the um, getting representation and stuff like that, stuff you talk to the UCLA people about. Uh, and one thing that I ask a lot of DPs is like, oh, has a reel been relevant to you? And it sounds more and more like reels don't, really, because people are just looking at Joe's project. Um, mm-hmm. But how did you navigate uh, going from the time of needing reels to having representation and 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 having uh assistance in your career in that way um i think i think uh and i think it's great and i'm so grateful i just didn't have time anymore to make one mm-hmm. and uh i i feel really fortunate to i do a lot of commercials but I also do movies and I feel like both have really, I've seen myself grow in both, which is amazing. Commercials, it's different. Like commercials, they need to see the, the products and the pieces. And those are 30 second, 60 second things that are so easy to send. Like here are all my beverage things, here are all my clothing ads, here are, you know, like that's the real. Yeah. And narrative wise, as I do more and more features, it's like, what features have you done? Can I get screener links? It doesn't, the montage doesn't matter right. anymore. Um, or can I watch a short that feels along the same lines? So I think the requests have changed, but I naturally just was shooting so much that I just didn't, I never felt like I had time to really dig into the thing. Also, finding a song for that shit is so hard. Worst. And I will get one and then be like, yeah, cutting the song. I don't like the song anymore. And then like, and then like want to change it. <laughs> just like, I don't know. It's the process of cutting the reels too. And I know people get like their favorite editors to cut them, which I could probably do, but I feel really bad about doing that. Uh, even if I pay them, it's like, why am I, why are they wasting their time on my reel? But I feel like, yeah, I just fell out of it. I feel like, you know, and it became more about the portfolio itself than some sort of two minute montage. Yeah. And how did, what, uh, what got you onto the path of getting representation because, uh, or, or any, any form of, of like official, you know, cause I feel like a lot of people think once you get that, you'll start getting jobs and, and it's the opposite. It's you get a lot of jobs and then you get an agent or whatever. Yes. After. Yeah. Um, I think I, I don't know how to translate this, but I felt ready, whatever that means. I felt like, I was stuck in this really low budget world and 
I knew DPs were repped at some point in their careers. And if I could have any control over that situation or put myself in a position where I could be repped to open up the door to other things, I was going to try to figure out what that was. And so I, you know, I knew so many people that were repped and started meeting agents. And then WPA actually reached out to me around the same time. So it was like kind of a perfect thing where I was feeling ready to like, just open the door to more things because I felt stuck. Um, so yeah. As always, networking wins. <laughs> Knowing people who have agents can put you in touch with agents. Yeah. And hearing about their experiences and like, you know, how to, because again, you don't talk about that stuff in film school. You don't know how to navigate the agent relationship. So it's, you know, it's really about getting to know more people and personalities and all that stuff. And, um, I just knew that I wanted to do bigger things and, and, um, you know, have deal memos and have, you know, protection in that way of like people who rep you and can help you get paid on time and all those things like that logistical part of it too is that alone, you know, you, you don't want to be putting time into that. You know what I mean? You want to, I'm, I'm still mad at that. I've got probably three jobs right now that, should have paid me forever ago, but they're like my friends. So I'm like, yeah. Yeah. One of them's in the UK too. So we're never awake at the same time. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. And none of us like talking about money and it's just, you know, there is this, it's a job and there's a business element. And so not having to do that is, is really nice. Yeah. Um, well, I, I've kept you long enough after the hour, but uh, thank you so much for uh, chatting with me. And I'd love Thanks to have you back. Um, yes, please. Whenever you want. Shoot, I'll, shoot come back, I'll come back. I'll come back with all my bad advice, which yeah, we'll I feel like you just, well, I feel like you just gave me a second chance to be like thinking about it while I was talking to my agents, but I have not thought about it. So fair enough. <laughs> well, we'll like, have you back and we'll okay launch through all that stuff. <laughs> great. <laughs> well, uh, cool. thanks again and, uh, and have a great rest of your day. Yeah. Thanks, Kenny. Talk soon. Cool. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. Our theme song is written and performed by Mark Pelly, and the F at our Mapbox logo was designed by Nate Truax of Truax Branding Company. You can read or watch the podcast you've just heard by going to ProVideoCoalition.com or YouTube.com slash Owlbot, respectively. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>